great honor to be here in uh, Thomasville, Georgia. And so thank you, uh, Tim, for inviting me here, Dr. Uh, Philston. And um, of course, Joel, thank you for that incredible introduction. And just thank everyone. I want to thank you for your hospitality. Uh, I've just had a wonderful time. And what about that worship? Let's give this praise team a hand. Man, they were incredible. Wow. So I'm always flattered. I'm always humbled when I hear someone reading my bio. I have uh, done a lot of things in my life. And one day I was at a church. It was a very traditional black Baptist church uh, right outside of Atlanta. And uh, the person read my bio. And then I came up and I preached the word. And afterwards, a little old lady came up to me after the service. She said, baby, <laughs> is it true that you really played pro football? I said, ma'am, I didn't play much. Uh, NFL for me stood for not for long, so uh, <laughs> it didn't last long. I said, ma'am, it's no big deal. And she said, and babe, you were the road manager and business manager for one of my favorite gospel groups, the Winans family? I, I said, yes, yes, ma'am, I was. And then she said, and babe, <laughs> you spent 25 years in the investment business. You were trained on Wall Street. I said, yes, ma'am, I did. And by this time, I'm starting to feel real good about myself. I could feel the pride welling up in me. And, and then she said, and baby, on top of that, you've written a couple of books. One of them has even made one of the bestsellers yes. I said, yes, ma'am, that's me. And by this time, my chest is sticking out. <laughs> then she said, and baby, can I tell you one more thing? I said, bring it on. I want to hear it. She said, sounds like you need to get a steady job to me. That's what so I'm just a little unstable. Hadn't, hadn't figured out what I wanted to do yet, that's all. But it is such an honor to be here with you today. Um, we're going to talk about a lot of neat things today. And um, the title of my message is Let's Get to Know Each Other. And so we're going to be talking about race and culture and reconciliation and unity and healing, all of the things that a lot of churches try to avoid and a lot of people try to avoid. But hopefully, uh, by the grace of God, we'll bring some humor to this sensitive subject, but we'll also be enlightened. And, uh, and by the end of this thing, I believe God has called us to be the hope of the world, okay? We're called to be salt and light to the earth. And so that is our mission, to go out there, and no matter how disunified things are, we can make a difference. If you believe that, say amen. amen. Yes, let's give God one more hand clap of praise. Yes. So I was reminded of a story of a black pastor who got a ministry assignment, and he lived on the East Coast, and he had to fly to the West Coast to preach. He decided to bring his eight-year-old son with him uh, on this ministry assignment. They boarded the plane, and when they got on the plane, they noticed that they were the only black people, the only African-Americans on the plane. No, no big deal. They, they sat in their seat, and, um, and the plane began to take off. The plane took off without incident. And then the plane reached an altitude of about 30,000 feet, and everything was going fine. But about two hours into the flight, the plane started to lose altitude. 
The pilot came over the public address system. He said, ladies and gentlemen, we have a problem. We're starting to lose altitude, and unfortunately, we might crash. But we have a plan. Plan A is to throw some of your luggage overboard. If we lighten the plane up, we believe we can keep it from crashing. So the people thought about it. Nobody wanted to lose their possessions, but they said, well, it would be better for us to lose our possessions than to lose our life. So they went down, they threw the luggage overboard. Unfortunately, the plane kept on going down. Then the pilot came back over the public address system. He said, ladies and gentlemen, we're continuing to, to lose altitude, but we got to go to plan B, and it's a good plan. Some of you may not like it, but this is what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to ask some of you all to jump, okay? <laughs> and, but we want to be fair. We're going to ask you to jump in alphabetical order according to your race. In other words, if your race starts with an A, we need you to jump. If your race starts with a B, we need you to jump. If your race starts with a C, etc. Everybody looked around. Nobody was crazy about the plan, but they figured, okay, this might work. Maybe a few folks will perish, but not everybody, okay? So he said, okay, if your race starts with an A, we need you to jump right now. Everybody was quiet. Nobody moved. He says, if your race starts with a B, we need you to get up and jump right now. Hurry up. Nobody moved. If your race starts with the C, we need you to hurry up and jump. This plane is going down. Nobody moved. Finally, the eight-year-old boy hit his dad in the side. He said, Daddy, Daddy, you're a preacher, and you're supposed to be a man of integrity. Dad, the man said, A, and you know we're African Americans. We should have jumped, Daddy. <laughs> then the man said, B, Daddy, and you know we're black, Daddy. We should have jumped. Then the man said, C, Daddy, and in some places they still call us colored. Daddy, we should have jumped. The daddy said, shut up, boy. Today, we're Negroes. So. <laughs> we still use that word when it's convenient to us, okay? I, I love to tell that joke because I, I love to see white people laugh about that, you know? Because people are so sensitive about race stuff. But, but I have a lot of white friends, I've told that joke, boy, they love to laugh. And I say, well, guys, what are y'all laughing about? I say, you know, there are some issues with, with white people, too. I mean, think about this. I mean, you all are, are born pink, okay? <laughs> then you grow up, you call yourself white. Then when you get in the sun, you turn red. Then when you are cold, you all say you're blue, okay? <laughs> then when you get sick, I've heard some white people say, well, I'm green. Then when you die, they say you turn purple. And you got the nerve to call us color? <laughs> That's a lot of colors right there, man. <laughs> so as you can tell, we're going to have a little fun tonight with this subject, okay? It's a lot of negative stuff going around. So let's get to know each other. Well, before we get to know each other, before we jump into the message, I want to tell you a little bit about myself. I know you've heard the introduction, but I want to kind of personally introduce you uh, to my life. I want you to know me, and, um, and if I had the opportunity, I would love to go home and, with each and every one of you to get to know you, too. All right. Let's see what we got here. All right. Uh, 
Okay, I need my guy to come back, or we could just next slide. It, it, I, just, I just lost it on the phone, but I'm, tr I'm trying to advance it. There we go. All right, so my life started with this man right here. This is my dad, Lee Allen Jenkins Sr. Why do I show his picture? Because this is my dad, and, uh, and, and I'll try to work it. And uh, he was one of the top high school running backs in Georgia. Came out of high school, I think 1956, in Dublin, Georgia. Um, and so he went on to college at Fort Valley State University on a football scholarship. And the reason I like to talk about this, because my dad was one of the best running backs probably in the southeast. He had a lot of scholarships, but there were a few schools he couldn't go to. He couldn't go to Georgia. He couldn't go to Auburn. He couldn't go to Tennessee. Couldn't go to Florida or Florida State. And it wasn't because he wasn't fast enough, because he was plenty fast. It wasn't because he wasn't tough enough. He was very tough. It was because of one reason, and that was the color of his skin. And then he met this lady, next slide please, uh, named Alfreda. She was also at Fort Valley State, my mom and my dad. And they ended up getting married their sophomore year in college. And uh, they were both from South Georgia, my mom from Richland, Georgia, and my dad from Dublin, Georgia. Uh, they had a great childhood. They tell me about it all the time. But there were places that they couldn't go growing up in the late 50s. Uh, they paid state taxes like all Georgia residents did. However, they couldn't use public facilities like parks and uh, certain places they couldn't live in, certain restaurants they couldn't go to. Uh, they couldn't even exercise very simple things like voting. But that was just the way of life back then. So I came uh, shortly thereafter, and being from Atlanta, there's a huge hospital in Atlanta called Grady Hospital. And there's a phrase in Atlanta, if you were born in Atlanta, they would ask you, are you a Grady baby? And, and, and so everybody knows about Grady Hospital. So people often ask me, were you born in Grady Hospital? And I say, kind of, sort of. And the reason I say kind of, sort of, because Grady Hospital didn't allow black patients to be admitted until 1965. So if you were black and you were in a car accident or something happened to you, you had to go to one of the annex hospitals uh, called Hugh Spaulding or McLaren. That's where Grady had to go. It was attached to Grady, but it wasn't the real hospital. Okay. All right. And then um, I grew up in an incredible neighborhood. Uh, it was an all-black neighborhood. Uh, if we saw a white person in our neighborhood, they were lost, okay? <laughs> That's just the bottom line. It was an all-black neighborhood, and uh, all of my teachers were black, all of my coaches were black, uh, all of the doctors I went to, and uh, some of that was because of, of white flight. When black people moved in, a lot of white people moved out and created the suburbs of Atlanta. But I didn't know all of that growing up. All I knew is I had neighbors and people who loved me and who taught me that everybody had equal value in God's eyes. And any time I saw something or heard something racist, my parents would tell me that they just don't know any better. Everybody is not like that. 
So I thank God for my parents. So then we moved at 12 years old. And uh, when I was 12, and we moved to still in Atlanta, but we bought our first house. I was 12 or 13 years old. So we moved to this middle-class black area. By the way, I love to show this picture because that's my dad right there, and that's me on the right side, and that's me with my rifle. I was a member of the NRA even when I was eight years old, okay? <laughs> All right. But I also like this picture because notice my sister's dolls. They're white dolls. And because in the late 60s, they weren't making black dolls. So a lot of black kids, everything we saw on TV, whether it was a hair commercial, lotion commercial, soap commercial, a doll, a kids playing with toys, we did not see ourselves. So one of the things that my parents and my teachers and my pastors and, and the people in my neighborhood constantly did is built up our self-esteem as black people. Now, not in a way to where we would uh, think we were better but certainly not in a way that we would think we were worse than anybody. They just let us know that the color of our skin doesn't make up us a victim and, and that we could achieve anything we wanted to in life. Okay? So we grew up and we moved to this middle class black area and uh, it was a pretty incredible area. I need the, the lady to come back one more time. <laughs> All right. All right. So here, anyway, that's a picture of me right there. I, I grew up. That's me. Uh, I, believe it or not, I was one of the Jackson Five at one time. Okay. It was Marlon, Michael, Tito, Jackie, Jermaine, and Lee. Y'all just didn't know that. Okay. So I love the Jackson Five. And I grew up in this neighborhood. And, and right down the street from where I live, was uh, Ambassador Andrew Young. Uh, another mile or so from me was Hank Aaron, the home run king. Uh, another mile and a half from me was a guy named Maynard Jackson, who was the mayor of Atlanta, who the airport is named after. And then just a few blocks from my house was uh, John Lewis, who's now a congressman. So every day I would see these people that I looked up to and I knew that I could achieve anything I wanted to. The only bad thing about my neighborhood was the neighborhood bully. Every Friday, the neighborhood bully beat me up and took my lunch. And her name was uh, Michelle. <laughs> yeah, it was a girl, but she was really big, y'all, really big. So I, um, I started getting good in sports, and uh, next slide, and then, um, you know, around the 11th grade, I was, I was a quarterback, believe it or not. People said, well, who do you compare yourself to? I said, I was kind of like a, a Michael Vick before there was Michael Vick. I could throw the ball, I could run, and, um, you know, I always wanted to play pro ball or college ball, but I didn't know if I was good enough, and, and my junior year, I had a couple of great games, and next thing I know, schools started coming to me. I mean, Georgia Tech and Georgia and Tennessee, and then once a guy named Woody Hayes from Ohio State came, I couldn't believe it. And then Michigan and all these schools, Arizona, Arizona State, and a lot of them were recruiting me as an athlete. Uh, they said, well, we believe you could play quarterback, depends on the system, you could play wide receiver, you could play defensive back. I mean, I was blown away. Vince Dooley was at my house a lot. He was the head coach at the University of Georgia, and people ask me all the time, why didn't I go to Georgia? Okay, so this stays between us in here, okay? All right, so now back in the 80s, now Georgia is a fine academic institution right now. 
But it wasn't always that way, okay? Okay, kind of sort of it was. Well, for a lot of athletes, they were, they were you know, kind of pushing a lot of the athletes through. So Vince Dooley came to my house, and he said, uh, well, Lee, we want you really bad. We think you could play wide receiver, defensive back. He said, there's only one problem. He said, you're great point average. I said, wow, well, what's wrong? He said, it's a little bit too high for us. Okay, <laughs> all right, I'm just kidding. All right. <laughs> so I ended up... Uh, Going to Tennessee, and one of my next slides, my best friend at Tennessee, that's it, was a guy named Reggie White. And at, and at Tennessee, I went to my first Fellowship of Christian Athletes meeting. And for the first time in my life, I heard the gospel very clearly. I had probably heard hundreds of sermons from my pastor at home in my black traditional Baptist church. But for some reason, it all became clear to me. I committed my life to Christ, ended up becoming fellow, president of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and God used me in a tremendous way. And then my sophomore year at Tennessee, uh, we opened up the season uh, in Knoxville and they, against Georgia, and there was this running back named Herschel Walker. And um, I was from Georgia, so I had run track against Herschel, and I kept telling everybody on our team, this guy is big, and he is fast, and he is dangerous, okay? And so the first time throughout my whole football career, my mom called me the night before, and she said, son, I want you to know I'm proud of you. I said, thanks, mom. She said, son, I want you to know I love you. I said, thanks, mom. But son, please don't try to tackle that man. <laughs> Please. I said, Mom, I can't do that. I'm the starting defensive back. That's my job. She said, son, I don't think they would take your scholarship from you if you just missed, you know, 10 or 11 tackles in one game. It's, she was so scared that I was going to get hurt. And to believe it or not, I was scared, too. But anyway, Herschel ran the ball. I tackled him, and I found out he was very good, but he was human. And so played against the great Herschel Walker two years in a row. Played against Bo Jackson, uh, Tennessee. We played University of Southern California, so played against him. And so an amazing thing happened in college. It was the first time that I was around white people. I mean, living with them and eating with them, and, 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 and I learned so much. I learned that you could be in this great country called America, but you could have two different experiences. And I began to share my life experience with these white guys and, and some of the things that I, had, I went through, and, and they began to share their life. And I'm telling you, sometimes it was like night and day. I mean, especially me growing up in the inner city of Atlanta and a lot of the things that I went through, it was like night and day. Well, I played uh, four years at Tennessee, started at defensive back. I was fortunate enough to be drafted by the NFL. I got a call one night from a guy I'd never heard of. He was the new coach for the New York Giants, and his name was Bill Parcells. I go to my first rookie mini camp, and they introduce the new defensive coordinator, a 31-year-old guy that I had never heard of, had a really funny last name that I couldn't pronounce, and his name was Bill Belichick. So unfortunately, I only lasted one year. I got hurt in preseason and uh, never made the active roster, but uh, right after my career was over, I got into the investment business, trained on Wall Street, spent 25 years, moved back to Atlanta, 
and uh, was very active in um, racial reconciliation issues. Because by this time, I could see what God was doing in my life. Raised in an all-black area, thrust into this white Bible belt of Knoxville, Tennessee. And, and, and I went to a, a white Baptist church my first two years at Tennessee. And then my last two years, I went to a white Pentecostal church. So, I mean, I was coming home to Atlanta singing country music. To, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's like, what has happened to you? But it was just God working in me, preparing me for my life's work. And so I'll skip a few things, but over the last few years, we've had a lot of racial unrest in our country. And, um, and it's amazing when God allows you to go through some things, it's for a purpose and a reason. And so little did I know over the last few years that God would use my experience in the black culture, and my experience walking deep in the white culture, we will bring both of these experiences together to help me to, um, to really speak to a lot of issues, even in the city that I live in, and in Roswell. So we've had some things to happen, just like you all have had some things to happen here. And believe it or not, uh, some of the things that have happened here have happened all around the United States. You just only hear about the big ones. Well, we had a similar incident in the place that I live in, in Roswell, Georgia. And so what I did is I reached out to the police chief, the white police chief, and it was an incident with an African-American. And I invited the police chief to our church in the midst of this controversy. And I remember when he accepted the offer to come to our church, he said, now, Lee, what am I walking into? And he didn't know me. I said, you're going to walk into an environment where you're going to be loved by people, and you're going to receive so much love and so much respect. I said, however, I'm doing a sermon on race and on some of the things that we perceive as, and some, as some injustices. So you might feel a little uncomfortable with some parts of my sermon, but if you hang in there, I promise you it is redemptive. And so sure enough, as I was preaching my sermon, I could see him squirming, but by the end, he was smiling, and then I called him up on stage. And I got our elders to come around him, and we prayed for him. Next slide. So this picture was on the front page of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. It's me on the far left praying for our white police chief. And he, he could not believe it because he was receiving, you know, so, so much criticism from a lot of people who were black, and we just welcomed him in. Now, did we challenge him and did we talk to him about some of the things we thought they could do better? Absolutely. But did we pledge our support and love toward him? We did that, too. And so shortly after that, uh, next slide, uh, there was an article featured on our church on the front page of the AJC, six pages about this movement that I started called the Conversations Movement. And it is a movement in, in Atlanta that is really taking off. And uh, it is where predominantly black churches and predominantly white churches come together and they break up in the small groups. They do life for four months and they meet and go through a series of questions and they get to know each other. And uh, we, we tried it out and now we've had almost a thousand people to go through it and it has been incredible. And so that's what that article was about. Lastly, my family. Next slide. 
Uh, uh, you probably can't see it good, but that is my family right there. On the far left is my son, Ryan. He plays wide receiver. Where he just finished up his senior year at Arizona State. And then that's my wife, Martika. And believe it or not, we've been married uh, almost 31 years. Next week, it'll be 31 years. Yeah. And then my son, uh, the shorter son, he was a cornerback, starting cornerback for Clemson University uh, in 2014 and, and 15. And, uh, and then my daughter on the far right, she's actually the oldest. She lives in Los Angeles. She went to the University of Georgia. And then I have a, yes, so I did let one of my kids go to Georgia, okay, <laughs> yes. And my son, of course, Clemson University graduate and ASU, Arizona State graduate. So that's a little bit about me. I just wanted you to know about me because race has impacted my life in a significant way. And so that's why I appreciate so much you all coming out tonight uh, to, to listen to me and to, uh, to just lean into some of these issues that a lot of people run from. So this evening, I want to share with you a fascinating story about racial reconciliation. It is the story of Jesus's encounter with the Samaritan woman. Now we're going to pull out a few nuggets from John chapter 4 because this story is really about 42 verses and we don't have enough time to go through every verse. So I'm just going to pull out a couple of things, but, but, but I want to um, give you the backdrop first of this amazing encounter with Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. Maybe, you have, maybe you're familiar with this story because you know it as Jesus and the woman at the well. In 17, I'm sorry, in 722 BC, 700 years before Christ came, the Jews living in northern Israel were taken captive by another group of people called the Assyrians. So the Jews were taken captive by the Assyrians. And an interracial exchange followed that gave birth to a new ethnic group called the Samaritans. The Samaritans weren't 100% Jewish, but they weren't 100% Assyrian. They were a mixed race, half Assyrian or half Israelite or Jewish. Now, because they didn't have pure Jewish blood, they were despised by the Jews. The Jews didn't like the Samaritans, and the Samaritans didn't like the Jews. They didn't mingle with each other. They didn't live in the same neighborhood. They didn't attend the same schools. They didn't eat together. They didn't drink from the same water fountains. They didn't vote the same way. They didn't worship the same way either. The Jews and the Samaritans couldn't stand one another. They had a long, volatile history of segregation. So that's the backdrop. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? So what did Jesus do? And what must you and I do in order to promote racial unity? What should we do in order to be a part of the answer or the solution instead of a part of the problem. Next slide, please. Well, the first thing we must do in order to get to know each other, we must be intentional. Say intentional. intentional. Intentionality is so important. 
And one of the reasons it's important is because we sometimes think things will go away if we just ignore it. Next slide. Look at what Jesus did in John chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. It said, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria along the way. Now, a lot of us read that and we say, okay, it's no big deal. He left Judea, which was in the south. He had to go to Galilee, which was in the north. And he had to go through Samaria. Samaria was right in between Judea and Galilee. So the most efficient way to get from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north is a straight line. We learned that in geometry. The shortest distance between a two points is what? A straight line. But here's the problem. Right in the middle of this straight line from Judea to Galilee was a place called Samaria. That's where the Samaritans lived. And no Jew would be caught dead in Samaria. The Jews hated the Samaritans, so what the Jews would do is they would go around Samaria. In Atlanta, we have a loop called I-285. So the Jews would come close to Samaria and get on I-285 and go all the way around. It might be 20, 30 miles out of the way. They didn't care because no Orthodox Jew would dare go through Samaria. But that's not what Jesus did. Now, he didn't merely travel through Samaria because it was the shortest distance. He did it because he was on a mission for racial reconciliation. He was not going to succumb to the culture and what everybody else did. He was going to do something different. He was not afraid to confront the racial tension and the division that had existed for 700 years. So here's what Jesus wants us to know. Next slide. You cannot change what you will not confront. I think I want to say that again. You cannot change what you will not confront. There's a tendency for many people to eschew anything dealing with race instead of leaning into it. We want to avoid it. But how can we expect the race problem in America, and it is a problem, to get better if we don't confront it? Think about cancer. If we said, cancer is a problem, but all we got to do is stop talking about it, and it will go away. All we have to do is stop talking about diabetes and high blood pressure, and it will just fade away. We wouldn't say that. Because you have to treat a disease. And you have to treat this disease called racism. No problem is ever solved by ignoring it. Now, it may feel good to ignore it, but you don't solve anything by ignoring it. So, a couple of questions for you. How intentional have you been when it comes to building cross-racial relationships. How about this one? How many people of a different race have you sought out to build a relationship with? How many people have you sought out? How about this one? Does everyone in your telephone contact list look like you? How about this one? 
Have you ever had a person of a different color over to your house for dinner? That's an interesting one. Jesus was willing to do something the other Jews weren't willing to do. And that is, he was willing to go through Samaria. In other words, he was intentional about it. He was on a mission. So you have to be intentional. God expects us to be intentional about it. Because if we keep ignoring things, it will actually get worse, not better. Number two. Next slide. The next thing we must do is we must engage each other socially. That's why I love being here, seeing this. We must engage each other socially. Now, one of the ways Jesus engaged this woman was by starting with what they had in common, not their differences. Let me show you this. John chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. It says, eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. There's a lot there, you all. But let me say that even though the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other, they both had a high regard for Jacob as their spiritual father. And so Jesus met this lady at at the Starbucks of Sychar, okay? (laughs) Jacob's well. That's where people hung out. So we have to start with each other, not what we don't have in common, but what we do have in common. And we have a lot more in common, and we have a whole lot more that we agree on than what we don't agree on. Quick story, I ran for mayor of my city that I live in, this affluent, white, um, mostly Republican um, suburb of Atlanta. And I ran, as you could see, I'm a black guy, uh, so they said that's one strike against you. Uh, Some of the political experts said I would never get out of the single digits. Why? Because you're black. Number two, you have no political experience and you were running against political veterans. And then number three, you weren't affiliated, which means me, I was not affiliated with the party. I was running, well, really, it was a nonpartisan office, but most people were running as a Democrat or a Republican, and I said, I'm an independent. I can work with anybody. And so uh, I ended up getting in a runoff and did win, but got 46% of the votes and really brought this city and much of my support were from the very people who folks said would never vote for a black guy. So quick story. As we were going about my campaign, some of my campaign workers who were white came in my office one day and they said, Lee, the campaign's been going great, but we have some bad news. I said, what's up? They said, some of the the city fathers, some of the families, some of these, uh, this is what they said, some of the old white guys who've been around here for generations are against you. And they're making calls to people all around the city saying, stop Lee Jenkins. I said, well, why are they saying that? They're just making up stuff about you. They're saying stuff that you're going to remove the Confederate monuments. Well, first of all, there are no Confederate monuments. (laughs) So they're just making up stuff. They say, I'm going to take people's guns away. I mean, just all kind of stuff. And it was bad. They said, Lee, it's really bad. And and these are very influential guys. I said, I want to meet with them. 
And they said, Lee, no, you don't. No, you don't want to meet with these guys. I said, yes, I do. They say, Lee, no, you don't. I said, yes, I do. Schedule a meeting. So it was six of them, and we scheduled a meeting. Here's the deal. Only three of them showed up, which there's a lesson in that. And some people don't want to change. Some people don't want to know the truth. But the three that showed up, I come and sit down in front of them, and um, they all, they just start throwing things at me, you know. What do you think about the guys kneeling in the NFL? What do you think about this? What do you think? I said, whoa, hold on, hold on. Let, can we just get to know each other first? You know, I said, you know, where are you from? And this and that. And so we got to talking. Then they start asking me questions. You all, two hours went by, and we never talked politics. We never talked about my agenda. We stood there laughing and joking and hugging and having a good time. And by the end of the two hours, they said, you know what? We like you. Yeah, we like you. Who do we make this check out to? We're on board with you. Amen to that. So it just showed me if we had started talking first and foremost about all of these controversial things, we wouldn't have gotten to know the real person. And so I'm so glad we did that. So let's look at a few more verses, and I'll be coming to a close shortly. Look at John uh, chapter 4, next uh, thing, yes, um, next verse, and uh, verses 7 through 9. So this is what happened when they were at Starbucks or the well, okay? Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. I believe he sent his disciples away because they would have been a distraction. And I'll prove that to you in a minute. Okay. All right. So the woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. I told you they didn't like each other. So she was surprised. What is this Jew asking me? For a drink. Matter of fact, no. What is this Jew even doing talking to me? Then he's asking me for a drink. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew. I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? She couldn't believe that this Jew was talking to her, let alone asking her for a drink, and then is willing to take this Samaritan cup and drink out of it, to put a Samaritan cup on his Jewish lips. That was unheard of. Next slide. Here's what I want to say to you. One of the greatest hindrances to racial unity is our unwillingness to engage each other socially. So one of the reasons you don't see racial unity it's because, yeah, we do come together and stuff like this, and I want to celebrate this. I want to commend you. I hope you keep it up. But there's one more step is when you come to an event like this, you need to continue this in each other's homes and each other's businesses and each other's churches, on the golf course, working out with each other, going to movies with each other. You see, anybody can come together at a football game for the Atlanta Falcons. You look around, you see blacks and whites high-fiving, raising their hands. But when it's over, they all go their separate ways. But Jesus went a little bit further. Here are some things that Jesus did socially that you and I can learn from. Next slide. 
Jesus stepped out of his racial comfort zone. My question to you is when is the last time you have stepped out of your racial comfort zone? Okay? That's very, very important. In other words, Jesus entered her world. He entered the world of the despised race. Okay, let me say it another way. He entered the world of the minority race. He entered the world of somebody who didn't look like him, who didn't vote like him, who didn't worship like him. He entered their world. Now, this is typically easier for blacks than whites in general. Now, why do I say that? Because to be a minority in America, if you want to be successful, you have to learn how to assimilate into the white culture. It's a part of being a minority. You just have to learn how to do that into the majority culture. But if you are the majority culture and you're white, if you don't want to do it, you don't have to do it. You can stay and live around all white people. You can go to school around all white people. You can go to your club. You can do everything if you want to. You don't really have to engage. Now, why do I say that? Because you're simply the majority culture. It would be the same way if black people were the majority culture. So you have to be more intentional. At our church in Roswell, Georgia, it's about 80% white, the area, our church is predominantly African-American, and more and more white families are joining our church. And it's amazing, when they come to our church, they are shocked. And one of the reasons they are shocked is because all these stereotypes. And, and they're like, wow, this is great. And one of the reasons they are shocked is because they have never spent quality time in a predominantly black environment. And a lot of these stereotypes are just getting wiped away, and they are loving it. So Jesus stepped out of his comfort zone. Also, Jesus was willing to have intimate fellowship with her. He put his Jewish lips on a Samaritan cup. He did what other Jews wouldn't do. So I want to commend you for this event, for going to church with each other, going to basketball games with each other, football games. But what Christ wants is for us to share our lives with one another. When you hurt, we ought to hurt. When we hurt, Absolutely. you ought to hurt. Amen. We ought to be Amen. bearing each other's Amen. burdens. So I did a couple of sermons on race a few years ago when we had all this racial unrest, particularly during the time where... Uh, some of the unarmed black men had gotten killed uh, by police officers, and then in retaliation, a very terrible thing happened. The officers in Dallas were killed by a sniper. That was just a terrible week. And I had to address it uh, biblically, socially, um, because our people were hurting. And uh, some of the white people in the audience, it was the first time that they heard this kind of talk in church. And a few of the families got upset and they told uh, me and some of our elders that they were going to leave. And so our elders kind of took them through an exercise. They said, okay, was Pastor Lee biblical? They said, oh yeah, he was biblical. Was Pastor Lee 
mean-spirited in what he said. No, he was not. They said, um, was Pastor Lee uh, balanced in, in what he said? You know, yeah, he was very balanced. He talked about, you know, both sides of this thing. And then they said, did he do it in the right spirit? They said, yes, he did. And, and then they asked, well, what's the problem? Why do you want to leave? Because it made us feel uncomfortable. That's what they said. So I met with a few of them. And I said, a part of bearing each other's burdens is the pain we feel. You have to learn how to empathize with us if you're going to be our brothers and our sisters. I said it would be like a husband marrying a woman and and the woman a week before the wedding, the woman says, hey, Mr. Husband to be, I got to tell you something. Um, uh, Even though you think I'm beautiful and all of this, I was molested. I was raped when I was a little girl. And sometimes I have nightmares and sometimes I wake up screaming and I, I just need you to know that. Can you imagine the husband saying, whoa, hold on a minute. I don't want to hear about you being raped. I don't want to hear about your pain. I just want to embrace all the good stuff about you. But the pain that you went through in your past, I don't want to hear that. You know why a husband wouldn't do that? Because that just, that's not real love. So I challenged our people, our white members. This is a part of being brothers and sisters in Christ. But then I challenged our, our black people. You have to listen. And, and you have to listen to them. And you have to be patient. And you have to be forgiving. I mean, so it was, it was hard work, you all. This was not a Sunday picnic. And some people couldn't stand the heat. But the people who hung in there were blessed. Jesus also showed he valued the woman. He acknowledged that he needed something from this woman. Can you imagine the person in power telling the person who didn't have power, I need something that you have? Lastly, Jesus remained a Jew. (laughs) How did she know he was a Jew? She says, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. Maybe he looked like a Jew, had a Jewish accent, dressed like the Jew. In other words, you don't stop being who you are. You, you are, be who God made you. You don't have to try to be like some other culture. Some, just bring your history, bring your perspective into the relationship. Okay? But just don't let it get in the way of being a real brother or sister in Christ. Last thing. Next slide. The third thing we must do is we must place Christ above our culture. There's so much I could say, y'all, verses 19 and 20. Next slide. Uh, Sir, the woman said, uh, you must be a prophet. Now, the reason she told him that, because uh, the Samaritan woman asked Jesus for some water, and Jesus says, I'll give you living water. And she said, oh, give me some of that water where I'll never thirst again. He was talking about a spiritual transaction. She was thinking, you know, in physical terms. It just totally went over her head. And then he says, "Uh, go get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He said, yeah, you've been married five times. So he's like reading her mail, and then he says, and the woman and the man that you're with now, you're shacking up with him. That's what we call it in the black church. Y'all say cohabitating, okay? (laughs) Y'all use the big word. We just say shacking up, okay? 
So he read the woman's mail. So she says, sir, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship? While we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship. Next verse. Then she says, you Samaritans, this is what Jesus says, well, you Samaritans know very little about the one you worship. While we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes from the Jews. You all, there's so much I could say, but I'm going to summarize this, this exchange. Basically, Jesus says, okay, Miss Samaritan, you going back and talking about what your granddaddy did, what your daddy did. He says, your daddy was wrong. Your granddaddy was wrong. Your great-great-granddaddy was wrong. Because when it comes to worship, you must worship God in spirit and in truth. It's not about where you are. And so basically, he called her out. Look at this next, next statement. Next slide. There cannot be a stronger commitment to culture than to God's truth. I'm going to end with this story, and then we'll read how the story ends. When I was in the investment business, um, I um, had a lot of business relationships with different people, and some of the people who would invest with me, I would try to return the favor and do business with them. Well, this one particular gentleman I was quite fond of, he was a white guy, and we got to be friends, and and he had the type of business where I could introduce him to a whole a new entree of clients, which is primarily wealthy Afri African-Americans in Atlanta. And he had a service that I really liked. And I was going to hook him up, as we say. Well, one night he invited my wife and I to his home. And uh, we were walking down the sidewalk to his front door. And right on the side of his front door is a two little statues. And they were statues of uh, black people and they were eating watermelon, and it was these statues. So it took everything in me not to be offended, because I knew we had a long night before us. So I just kind of put it behind me, went in, enjoyed the dinner. And then I called him uh, that Monday, and I said, hey, man, I really enjoyed the food, the fellowship. It was incredible. But there's one thing that highly offended me. I said, those statues out in the front. I said, uh, it was just highly offensive. And I said, is that how you see black people? Because if you do, then we're going to have a tough time being friends. In fact, I don't even think we can be friends. And I'm certainly not going to be able to introduce you to other wealthy African Americans. And I said, I appreciate you, but I, I can't, this is not going to work. You, you have to respect who I am. You can't disrespect us and then expect me to be your friend. I, I just, I just, this is just not going to work. And he said, well, Lee, let me call you back tomorrow. So I thought I had lost a friend. I was tossing and turning the whole night. Should I have said anything to him? Maybe I should have just let it go. But I knew in my heart I did the right thing if this was going to be a real friendship. He calls me back the next day. He says, Lee, I want you to know that those two statues have been in my family for generations. And 
I want you to know that I busted them up into pieces. He said, because I care more about you as a person and our friendship than I care about a tradition. And the tradition was his family. They were very wealthy and from Savannah, Georgia. They owned a big plantation for many years. And he says, I cannot put my tradition over my commitment to Christ. So there cannot be a stronger commitment to tradition than to God's truth. So here's my question to you before I tell you how the story ends. Are you putting your race above righteousness? Are you putting your politics above someone else's personhood? Are you more Democrat than disciple? Are you more Republican than righteous? Let's look and see how the story ends. Verses 39 through 42, last slide. So after Jesus has this exchange, I mean, it got really deep. It says, many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus. You're talking about missionary work. Believed in Jesus. Why? Because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. So if Jesus had never talked with this woman, she never would have gone back to her neighborhood to the Samaritans. So she goes back to these people who have historically had nothing to do with Jews and say, I just met the coolest Jew in the world, guys. And he told me everything I did. And then it says, when they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. Now, how does that happen? 700 years of segregation and then one conversation and one show of respect turns into a sleepover. I mean, how does that happen? It says, so he stayed for two days long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. That means people got saved. That means that people came to Christ. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. Amen. That's what missionary work is all about. Amen. That's what this, the, the race thing is, is, is really a means to the end. That's not the goal. The goal is getting people to hear the gospel of Jesus. The goal is getting people to give their hearts to Jesus. And that's what this lady was able to do, all because somebody said, let's get to know each other. So how I want to end this, I just want to have a simple word of prayer. Then if we have time, I know I've gone a lot longer than my allotted time. But I would like to maybe open it up just for a few questions. Is that all right? Uh, you sure? Okay, great. But I'd like to pray for you. Uh, let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, when we are challenged with a word like this, we can ignore it, we can wrestle with it, or we can take action. And so, Lord, I'm praying that we won't just be hearers of your word, but doers of your word. Regardless of the color of our skin, regardless of our position, Father, I pray that you will use us as salt and light to this earth. Your word says in Psalm 133, how good and how pleasant it is when God's people dwell together in unity. Lord, help us to be unified. And so, Lord, help us to humble ourselves 
to love one another and to bear each other's burdens so that people will see us and they will know you because of our love that we have toward one another. So we thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.